ladies and gentlemen, and last, but certainly not least, It's not a day for the sound bites. Let's, let's, let's go back into history. I feel the hand of history upon our shoulder. He who controls the past controls the future. Past masters from the National Archives. Welcome to the Sound of History. Hi there. You are listening to Past Masters from the National Archives in London. I'm Bob. And I'm Joe. And this month we're looking at one of the strangest sets of records we have here at the Archives, the British government's very own X-Files. Mysterious lights in the sky, unexplained radar traces, reports from military sources and members of the public, and official government policy on UFOs from the Old Air Ministry, the Ministry of Defence, the Foreign Office and the Admiralty. And why are we looking at this? Because it's a fascinating insight into the workings of government. And it's secret files on aliens. How good is that? I think they're unexplained aerial phenomena, aren't they? Where's the evidence they're aliens? Now, scepticism is very healthy, but I think when you've heard some of these documents, you might not be so sure. I think that's very unlikely. What have you got? We've got dozens of files containing carefully kept records of hundreds of sightings. How far back do they go? Well, the British government first begins watching the skies in the first decade of the 20th century. Looking out for German airships before the First World War. That's right. Well, since they went on to bomb cities up and down Britain in 1915, that sounds very sensible. But it's nothing to do with aliens. What else have you got? Oh, OK. World War II. Um, throughout the war, British and American pilots report seeing strange patterns of light on bombing runs over Germany. Like the lights you get on aircraft? Well, sort of, That's but not... another mystery solved, then. I'm getting good at this. Right. OK, that's very funny. We'll talk about after the war, then. In 1946, information began to come into naval intelligence and the air ministry of some peculiar sightings in the sky over Scandinavia. Considerable activity has been aroused by reports in the press of ghost rockets over Sweden. On the 25th of May, 1946, a Swedish newspaper reported a wingless cigar-shaped object the size of a small aircraft spurting sparks and flame from its tail. During the following days, reports of bright-moving lights in the sky over Sweden, Norway, Denmark and Finland appeared. The incidents were at first inclined to be attributed to meteorites. Subsequently, however, the number of observations increased greatly and still continue, particularly in Sweden. On average days, six to eight are reported, while on two days, 9th of June and 11th of August, some two to three hundred observations on each day were made. Ghost rockets? Yes, weird, isn't it? Top secret. Reports have been received from Finland, Sweden, and even directly from Denmark. Observations were made in the late evenings or early mornings, and although it is believed that half-light exists all night, it is probable that complete details were not distinguishable. Some state that there was no noise. Others that only a whistling was heard. All are unanimous that there was a meteor-like glow. Shape, a ball or cigar or aircraft without wings. Could you ask discreetly what this is all about? V2 rocket tests? At the beginning of July, a large number of observations occurred on several consecutive days in different parts of the country. A similar peak occurred at the beginning of August. With the cooperation of astronomers, the conclusion was reached that the two peaks in July and August were probably caused by meteors or meteorites. 
an analysis of the observations shows the most notable characteristics to be great speed, intense light, lack of sound, and approximate horizontal flight. The majority of the observations refer either to light phenomena or also to cylindrical or cigar-shaped objects, sometimes with a light in the tail, sometimes in the nose. On occasion, falling objects have been reported, which may refer to parts of a missile shed in flight. The press so far have said very little about it, possibly on a mode order from the government, since such reports as have appeared have tended to imply that there is some doubt about the nature of the missiles, though there is in fact no doubt at all, and have suggested that some of the objects seen might have been meteors, or even in one case, large seabirds diving into a lake. The opinion of those most closely in touch with the investigation is that when all doubtful reports are set aside, when all possible natural explanations are duly regarded, there still remains a residue of apparently trustworthy reports describing cigar-shaped objects flying horizontally at around sonic speed at altitudes not above the highest cloud level. We think it is excessively bold to link these reports together to make a track of 950 miles in length and attach no importance whatever to the fact that the said track points to London. Certain indications were received by radar and other instruments, but it proved impossible to establish the nature of the objects by this means. If they are of natural origin, then they are unusual. Sufficiently unusual to make possible the alternative explanation that at least some are missiles. If this is so, they must be of Russian origin. Further investigations are being made, and we shall soon know in due course whether or not these stories are moonshine. Isn't it most likely they are Russian missiles? The Germans have used sophisticated missile technology during the war to hit Britain with V-1 and V-2 rockets. Now everyone's working on captured German technology to improve their own. Well, that's certainly, I think, why Air Intelligence and the War Office are so interested. They send a Captain Malone to Sweden to report on the phenomena. They think that the Russians are using the Aland Islands off Finland or, or the north of Germany to fire off rockets over Scandinavia in test of their new technology. Very likely. Ah, oh, but there's a problem. It is known that a Russian-controlled group of workers has been engaged on development of certain German-guided projectiles, but there has been no evidence to indicate either that experimental firing has yet taken place or that these projects can be related to the Scandinavian observations. However, recent reports have suggested that this group may shortly carry out test firing in the Baltic area. In other words, the only Russian experiments they know about are not far enough advanced to be behind these sightings. Maybe the intelligence is wrong. Perhaps the Russians are further ahead than they think. No, actually, they're spot on. In fact, the first Russian missile launch doesn't take place until 1947, and it's in Russia because the Soviets are too secretive to do tests in the heart of Europe. OK, I've got another theory. Oh, good. This is right after the end of World War II. Isn't it possible that if you bomb people a lot, they start looking up nervously and worrying they see bombs? It's obvious that not all the sightings can be UFOs. Isolated reports of so-called missile observations have been received during past months from many other countries, in particular Greece, France, Portugal, Belgium, Austria, Hungary, Switzerland, Holland and North Africa. Well, I would agree with you, but there's one more interesting element to the story of the ghost rockets, and that's the search for any physical sign they might have left behind. You see, the British and Swedish governments, they weren't mucking about. This was a real investigation. On a number of occasions... 
observers have reported seeing a ball of fire or even a cylindrical object falling to the ground. On investigation at these supposed points of impact, various fragments have been picked up. Nothing has been forthcoming to indicate that the material originated from any kind of space projectile. A very thorough search has been made in certain lakes. So far, nothing has been found. There has been no progress in the recovery of missiles at Carlix. In all, three lakes are involved, and latest report is of a missile falling into the sea nearby. Swedish methods of operation are extremely slow and probably unproductive. So they're out looking for bits of smashed Russian missile. Well, that's what they're looking for, but what are they finding? Stockholm to Foreign Office. Soil remains so far recovered in Sweden, a piece is no longer than an egg of porous yellow combustible material, porous black carboniferous material, porous grey ash or slag material, and black slate material. Representative examples of each being sent separately. So now you're saying that these are what? Pieces of some sort of spacecraft? I'm not saying anything. I'm just showing how seriously this investigation was taken on the basis of just some lights in the sky. Analysis of most of these has been completed. Any of an unusual nature have now been satisfactorily explained, either as byproducts from local factories, slag from thermite welding, or of other innocent origin. The rest are common materials. While it would be possible to design propulsion systems which could give rise to such fragments, the fact that they are such common materials has not yet made it possible in any way to prove their connection with missiles. Some, indeed, have had the appearance of having lain outside for considerable periods. Meteorite experts have examined the samples and ruled out their origin from this source. So they're probably nothing. Very probably. Well, in fact, suddenly, after all the time and effort spent sending observers, dredging lakes, testing samples, suddenly the Cabinet Office decides there's been almost literally nothing to see. We are not convinced that there have been any missiles over Scandinavian territory at all. A very high proportion of all observations are accounted for by just two meteors, visible one by day and one at sunset in Sweden on 9th and 11th August respectively, Meteors are the simplest explanation. Remaining observations are random in time, place and country and can, not unreasonably, be attributed to fireworks, swans, aircraft, lightning and imagination. Such mass delusions are, in our experience, not unusual in time of public excitement. Now don't you find that a bit bizarre? Oh... You're not suggesting some sort of ridiculous conspiracy, are you? No, no, no. I just think it's a bit weird that after so much effort was gone to, so many people in so many departments thought it was a tip worth pursuing, and then all of a sudden, pff, nothing. Maybe they got intelligence that the Russians weren't carrying out launches. That's enough to make me lose interest. They're defence intelligence. They're only concerned with national security stuff, not chasing E.T. up and down the fjord. Well, how many people have to see something before it's big enough to be taken seriously? A lot. Oh, OK. How about a whole city? Asmara, the capital of Eritrea, 6th of April 1950, an ordinary British protectorate, suddenly not so ordinary. 6th of April 1950. Immediate, confidential, personal from Drew. 
Silvery-white objects of crescent shape at heights believed to be slightly less than 20,000 feet have been observed by many people in Ismara at intervals throughout the morning. Air Ministry Meteorological Station Airport has kept continuous detailed observation and recording and is now computing speed and height of two of them. Meteorological officer reports one object has been moving erratically, but not at excessive speed. The other, which is much higher, is almost stationary and has been under constant observation for over three quarters of an hour. Objects are of unknown origin. Detailed signal will follow as soon as possible. Meteorological Office Air Ministry. It seems that the silvery disc was most probably a silvered sphere of the type used by the Army for calibrating or testing radar sets. These spheres are about 18 inches in diameter, made of papier-mâché and coated with aluminium foil or paint. There are possibly military units using them near Asmara. The sphere must have been balloon-borne. The second object referred to is described as moving rapidly and erratically. It was most probably something small and relatively near to the observer. Nelson K. Johnson I was one of hundreds of people who saw these discs in the sky. I watched one for some time and was puzzled by the comparative slowness of its movement. It may have been a balloon, but it didn't look like it. What military units near Asmara were using these spheres. The district commander who commands them made no mention of such a possibility. Both objects were of the same type, so I was told. In the absence of Sir Nelson Johnson, I am replying to your letter. The local meteorological officer now considers the erratically moving objects astronomical. But it seems inconceivable that an object at an astronomical distance could appear to move erratically. Moreover, the slowly moving object, a balloon, we suggested, clearly cannot have been astronomical. British Administration, Eritrea. Without doubt, the explanation offered by the Meteorological Office of the Air Ministry can be discounted. It is clear uh, that the object was neither suspended by a parachute nor a balloon. Such equipment for radar calibration is not available in this territory. The rapidly moving object, which was clearly visible to many people, still remains unaccounted for. I agree that our suggested explanation falls to the ground. There appears to be no way of accounting for the rapidly moving object. It is not felt, in view of the uncertainty of the Air Ministry's views, that a satisfactory explanation of the phenomena is yet forthcoming. So what did they do? Well, well, nothing. The Air Ministry decided that the origin of the objects was explained. The people who saw them decided they weren't. That, that was it. But they could be anything. Well, as you say, they could be anything. But it's sightings like these, along with the ghost rockets and reports in the US, that led the government to take action. What kind of action? Well, it's a civil service. What do you do if you have a problem? You set up a working party. So they set up the Flying Saucer Working Party in 1950. Seriously? Really and truly, yes. The term flying saucer is usually said to have been coined in 1947 after a sighting in Idaho in the United States. Possibly a little bit tongue-in-cheek, UK defence files claim it was a British invention. The origin of the term flying saucer, as applied to strange objects in the sky, remains obscure, although authorship is claimed by a British journalist. According to him, while sitting in a Bronx cafe talking with three New York reporters, one of whom was doodling on a piece of paper, he observed that the drawing looked like a flying saucer. One of the Americans decided that they had something there, and within the hour, the term was in use. Within two, it is claimed that 90 people had reported having seen one.
That sounds about as likely as everything else you've pulled out of the bag in the last 15 minutes. Fair enough. But the Flying Saucer Working Party is completely genuine, and they look at some recent eyewitness statements and a couple of reports from the American Air Force on UFOs, codenamed Sign and Grudge. So it's not really what you would call an in-depth uh, kind so of study. So they think it's all rubbish. Yes, they do. When the only material available is a mass of purely subjective evidence, it is impossible to give anything like scientific proof that the phenomena observed are, or are not, caused by something entirely novel, such as aircraft of extraterrestrial origin, developed by beings unknown to us. We are, however, satisfied that the bulk of the observations reported can be accounted for much more simply. There is a very old scientific principle, usually attributed to William of Ockham, which states that the most probable hypothesis is the simplest necessary to explain the observations. We accordingly conclude that all the observations reported were due to one or other of 1. Astronomical or meteorological phenomena of known types. 2. Conventional aircraft, balloons, birds or other normal objects. 3. Optical illusions and psychological delusions. 4. Deliberate hoaxes. We consider that no progress will be made by attempting further investigation, and we accordingly recommend very strongly that no further investigation of reported mysterious aerial phenomena be undertaken unless and until some material evidence becomes available. That's very clear. Yes, unfortunately for the working party, almost before the ink is dry on their report, there's pressure to begin investigating again. Why? Well, there are a couple of reasons. The first is that the press continue to print reports of sightings, and so people ask, what are the government doing about this? And is there a cover-up? There seems to be a campaign building up to criticise government policy about the release of information on UFOs. The authors of the campaign are firmly convinced that extraterrestrial manifestations have appeared, whereas the air staff are by no means so certain. As it is not possible to release official information on something which does not exist, it is difficult to satisfy those with preconceived ideas to the contrary. Clearly, there is no air staff interest in what does not exist, and the fact that some people believe it exists is irrelevant. In fact, sometimes the government asks the same question. Prime Minister's personal minute to Secretary of State for Air and Lord Charwell. What does all this stuff about flying saucers amount to? What can it mean? What is the truth? Let me have a report at your convenience. Winston Spencer Churchill, 28th July, 1952. Wow! What was the response to that? Well, the Secretary of State, Viscount Delisle, told him about the flying saucer report and said nothing had happened to change their opinion since. But the second reason that the view of the working party is overturned, I think, is because there's a sort of what-if feeling. Not what if they're aliens, surely. No, no, but it's the Cold War. Um, like with the ghost rockets, what if people are looking up and spotting not little green men, but red ones? Russian. Exactly. The West knows that the Russians have been experimenting with rockets. We have lurid files in the collections from the mid-50s with names like the Soviet Union, the conquest of outer space. Sounds like a B-movie. Well, they actually turn out to be not imaginative enough. When the Soviet Union launched Sputnik, the first man-made satellite in 1957, experts in Britain and America were shocked. 
Russian air technology was obviously more advanced than the West. Well, exactly. And what kind of weird craft could the communists be flying over Britain right now? That's what keeps the air ministry awake at night. And so by the mid to late 1950s, there are clear procedures within the ministry on how to deal with sightings. Should a member of the services see an object in the sky for which he cannot account, he is to report it at once to the station commander through his superior officer. If a master radar station has aircraft under control in the vicinity of the reported phenomena, those aircraft are to be diverted to investigate. And alongside this, there are a few people within the ministry who are responsible, among other things, for checking out UFO sightings. Mostly they don't come up with much. The more common explanations have included aircraft, balloons, kites, fireworks, car headlights and, latterly, artificial satellites. Among the less common have been a model aircraft and a hayrick on fire. So what are they looking for? Well, anything that might have what they call defence implications. Threats to national security? Yeah. How do they actually go about investigating? Well, basically, they take the information in the report, wherever it's from, a ship's captain, an Air Force pilot, a member of the public, whatever, and they compare it with known flight paths, meteor showers, bright stars or planets... Um, satellite orbits, unusual weather formations or weather balloons, anything else they know about that might explain what it is. And what if it's none of those things? Well, it almost certainly is one of those things. Uh, From the 1960s onwards, we have most of the reports that come in and they're not quite in the same league as some of the other stuff we've been looking at. Dear Sir, More than three weeks have now elapsed since I notified you about unidentified flying objects at the above address. As I have looked each evening since and can see on most nights nine of these objects through one window and twelve more through another window, I doubt that anything has been done regarding them. That is a bit of a come down. In less than 30 years, they've gone from dredging lakes and evaluating top-secret US reports to answering letters from little old ladies with dirty windows. I think it takes inner toughness to be this polite. Dear Miss Jackson... Thank you for your long letter, in which you describe your many visions of the future, ever since 1967 and even before then. We are grateful for the trouble you've taken to set out all your many and varied experiences. I'm sure you'll not expect us to comment, however, on your prophetic powers, which are clearly unusual and probably unique. But files and files of that sort of thing are exactly the reason that some people think the Ministry are hiding something. Where's the juicy stuff? Dear Mr Mackey, thank you for your letter. I am glad to hear that the Ministry of Defence is not withholding UFO information. But it seems to me that you are just explaining them away as anything. I cannot believe that you have explained all the reports, because some, I have read, are impossible to explain unless they are machines of some unknown origin. And if you say that those cases you have explained as birds, aircraft, clouds, then that must be a lie. I am in a UFO organisation and we intend to inform people that UFOs are intelligently controlled machines. We will give them the truth even if you won't. Yours sincerely, Kevin Stevens. What are they hiding? OK, what are they hiding? You spent the whole show hinting and making snarky comments. Do you think that the National Archives has all the relevant information on UFOs up to whenever we've got up to the late 70s? Well, that's a very difficult question to answer. You're always saying that. Spill. OK, what does the Ministry say? Facts on UFOs are not suppressed by the Ministry of Defence. 
Reports received here have produced no evidence so far of any landings, ground marks or sightings of occupants in the UK. Our detailed UFO reports going back before 1962 have been destroyed. However, if we had received any reports which contained evidence which had any defence implications, they would certainly have been retained. The relatively small number of reports which remain unexplained contained insufficient information to enable the occurrence concerned to be positively identified. Although we are unable to make positive identification in these cases, there was nothing in the reports even to suggest that the incidents to which they refer were any different to the incidents mentioned in reports which were identified. We examine UFO reports as part of normal staff functions for any possible defence implications, but we do not pursue our investigations where insufficient data is given because further public expenditure on such investigations would not be justified. The Ministry of Defence aren't looking for aliens and haven't found any. That seems pretty clear. Oh, fair enough. But the fact is that the Ministry of Defence still carries out extensive investigations into some reports, but we haven't yet received any of those findings here at the Archives. In the late 1990s, the Ministry looked again at the whole area in a study called Project Condine. But now you're talking about very recent stuff, when you know most government records fall under the 30 years rule and we don't get them here until they're at least 30 years old. Well, that's true, but you can't blame people for being a bit paranoid when they know there are more detailed records out there that aren't publicly available. And that's why it's such a big deal that the Ministry of Defence has agreed that well over 100 recent UFO files should be transferred to the National Archives over the next three years. Presumably, these are the ones that were considered some sort of defence risk? We can guess at what might be in them by looking back at the 1950s files showing that jets were scrambled and questions asked in Parliament about how good Britain's early warning systems were because of unidentified radar traces. How easy was it, politicians wanted to know, to tell a radar echo uh, or, you know, or a UFO from a Soviet aircraft armed with nuclear warheads? There are really serious consequences if mistakes are made. Absolutely, and the files often reveal confusion or weakness of defence, and that's why they're kept secret. Here's a good example of a UFO sighting from 1957 that appeared in the press. Again, Australians last night still trying to identify the mystery object which streaked along the Channel Coast on Monday night. Supersonic Gloucester Javelin fighters got scramble orders and were guided to the vicinity of the object by radar. But despite their 600-mile-an-hour speed at 50,000 feet, they failed to catch it. Last night, all the Air Ministry would say was that investigation was continuing. And here's the explanation provided to the Air Minister, George Ward. Sixteen hunters of Fighter Command were exercising between 9pm and 10.30pm on the 29th of April. Two aircraft appeared on the radar screens of Ventnor ground-controlled interception at about 10pm. Since aircraft are not tracked inland, the GCI was not aware that the aircraft had in fact come from within the United Kingdom. So that's obviously embarrassing for at least two reasons. The Air Force is chasing its own tail around. Yes, and not only are British planes completely failing to recognise one another, but the Air Ministry is having to admit it can't accurately track aircraft away from the coast. Obviously in the middle of the Cold War, this is not good. But I've got one more question on behalf of the UFO researchers. Well, everyone, really. And it's a question of trust. In what way? Well, when documents reveal something that the government would rather we didn't find out about... Like the existence of aliens. Well, if, if you like. But it, but it could be anything. When we're talking about files like that, how can we know that they'll be preserved and protected? And who decides whether they'll get transferred here to the archives or kept by the department or destroyed? 
Now, I could blether on about that, but, but to answer those questions, we really need an expert. Fortunately, I found one. Howard Davis, the National Archives' own guru on archive selection. I hope you didn't ask him a lot of insane questions about hiding and destroying records. No. Well, maybe a couple. So, Howard, thanks very much for coming in. Um, first first ever guest. Um, so I wanted to ask, um, I think I'm right on saying we take about 5% of government records here. And how, how do we decide what we take? What we find about that, that 5% figure is that that holds right for departments such as Department for Transport or Communities and Local Government. We find that for places like the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, the Cabinet Office, a much higher proportion is taken. And for some of the executive agencies, um, I don't know, the, um, the Vehicle Licensing Authority... The Potato we, Marketing Board. Exactly. We would take a much, much smaller percentage. So 5% as the overall figure represents a huge variation. And that's really because of the, the difference in perception that, that we have as archivists of the value of the information mm-hmm. in the various records that different departments produce. So what are the criteria? So you're setting the criteria by which records are decided to be important or, or not important, and you're, and you're guiding the departments in. That's, that, that's right. We, we have a number of published criteria that establish what it is that the National Archives collects. It's, it, it's which subjects and themes we are interested in, in developing our collection of. So, for instance, there is a theme of... Um, defence and national security. We ha- there are then a whole set of further, more detailed pieces of guidance, operational selection policies that establish in, in greater detail what records we take, for instance, from the security service. And presumably they, those are rules that they abide by even when those records aren't being transferred here, because I know that there are, there are certain classes of records that I'm sure you would encourage preservation of but that, that are continually held by the department because of national security concerns. Well, that, that's right and the, and the security service is a, a key example of, the, of that. They have criteria for selecting records that they, they follow. The, there is a difference between selection and access and just because we have identified a record that's worthy of permanent preservation that doesn't mean that it's automatically going to be transferred to the archive and even if it is there might be a a period for which it has to remain closed. So, um, so would we catalogue those um, the, those records that are even though they're not they're not physically here? The the ones that are transferred to the archive closed, we would catalogue those, and by and large, the, the, those catalogue descriptions are are available, um, and that's what enables members of the public to submit an FOI access request under the, the Freedom of Information Act. People have a right to request access to information that we hold, even if it's closed and hasn't an, uh, an identified FOI exemption to it. The material that ha- hasn't yet been transferred, the, the retained material, as we call it in the jargon, some of that will be on the catalogue and some of it won't be. And it largely depends on whether we're talking about a whole run of retained records or maybe it's one or two files that have been retained from a whole run of material that can be transferred. And those we will have a description for. So it's very much a, it's quite a two-way process then between you and you in the department, there's quite a lot of backwards and forwards about, you know, you're, you're setting the guidance. I mean, obviously you're relying on them to, to carry out the guidance, but, I mean, do you go in and carry out? 
Oh, absolutely, uh, absolutely. The uh, the way the the legislation works for um, this aspect of uh, of um, activity on public records is that it's the government departments who carry out the selection work, uh, but they do that under the supervision of staff from the National Archives. There is a statutory relationship there. The departments do the do the work, and we oversee it and we supervise it. And that's how come we set the criteria for what is going to be kept. Oh well, that sounds incredibly tra- sounds very transparent. <laughs> uh, but well, it's it's more transparent now than it than it used to be. If you go back twenty years or so, none of the the detail, what the criteria were, how they were applied in individual cases, none of that information was available. Uh, but what about when things get a bit murkier? What about when you're dealing with a very sensitive um, case, like um, perhaps? arms to Iraq or, or dare I say it um, yeah, UFOs like we've been talking about things that perhaps it's um, it, that could be potentially embarrassing for a government um, if, if they were if they were released where it might be in their interest for records to be um, misplaced or, or not transferred in, into, a, into a public um, public space how, how yeah. do you well that, that those considerations would have no part whatsoever in the decision about selection. Either a a record contains information that's worth preserving or it doesn't and the fact that the information that we think needs to be preserved might also be embarrassing to a public authority or a government minister that would have no effect on the decision to preserve it. But as I've already said, preservation and access are two different things. Howard, thank you very much. Okay, you're welcome. What a nice man. Happy now? Oh, you think I've got such a nasty, suspicious mind? Thank you to our readers, Andrew Ashmore, Gary Thorpe, Jill Gillespie and Andrew Ormerod. As usual, documents from this edition are on our website, www.learningcurve.gov.uk forward slash podcasts. The Ministry of Defence is now transferring files on UFOs to the National Archives every other month. And you can find out more about the new releases at ufos.nationalarchives.gov.uk. And I'm sure everything's totally above board. You're impossible. I think we'd better talk about the next episode. I think you're right. Next time, we're back in the Middle Ages at the height of the Hundred Years' War between England and France. We'll be looking at documents that brought one English king to the brink of ruling the whole of France and finding out why this 15th century European Union dissolved back into bloody conflict. Once more unto the breach, dear friends. I'll trust you'll be back on your medication by then. Thank you very much. <laughs>